This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. In today's episode, Ian and I discuss our thoughts on 1D&D's expert classes after playtesting them ourselves. If you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. Hey there, John. How you doing today? Very excited to talk about the playtest once again, as I see us doing for the foreseeable future. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to talk about, you know, our thoughts on the expert classes now that we've gotten a chance to playtest them. We did that panel with uh, Stephanie and Michael, where we just took a look at the document by itself and gave our immediate thoughts and reactions. But, you know, we were finally able to organize a game about a month after the material came out. And, you know, we've got a we've got some thoughts now that we can share now that we've seen how the material actually plays in the context of a session. I am a little nasally today. Uh, I am just a little congested. So if I sound a little more annoying or a little more nerdy, um, you know, that's why. Yeah, no problem, John. I, I was recording some YouTube today and I had to pardon myself during the video uh, because of uh, similar similar things. So I totally get that. So before we get really started on the actual like meat and potatoes of this specific UA, I wanted to talk about our reaction to the playtest in general uh, and, you know, how how we feel about it, because I know that um, you know, during or rather after that playtest one shot that we did, we talked a little bit. You gave me some feedback on DMing, but also on, you know, the playtest material and trying to actually use it. Um, and, you know, you you expressed that it felt kind of like it's difficult to get a really good grasp about what we are, you know, looking at when it comes to these one D&D changes, since we don't have like uh, you know, a lot of time to do a full campaign and really compare it side by side with the, um, you know, with the current existing like Bard, Rogue, and Ranger. Uh, I mean, you could do it on paper, but to play test that takes a lot more, uh, a lot more time and a lot more context. Uh, so John, could you, uh, could you uh, reiterate what you told me there? So in that one D&D panel that I mentioned, uh, Michael, who was like our third dungeon master, posed the question of, even though this is called playtest material, and even though the D&D Beyond interviews with Jeremy Crawford seem to say, we want players to really dig their teeth into it. Michael asked the abstract question of, is this really meant to be playtested, especially since there have been years leading up to this in terms of the development before they even released it for our reaction. I participated in two playtest sessions for Character Origins, and now that this is the third one I've gone through, I'm more and more realizing that it's harder and harder to get a full grasp of what 
all of this material means in the grand scope of the game. So one of the things I had asked you because you had volunteered to be the DM for this latest playtest session is if we could build characters to level six. Reason being that level six characters had their second subclass feature. So in my head, it was like, oh, well, what we'll get a sense of is what these classes look like at the top of the curve of where a lot of players end up actually playing D&D, which is between third and seventh level. That's like where most play happens. And one of the things I noticed as a player is that largely what my criticism was for the expert class design is how features were kind of moved around the leveling progression. So for example, uh, rogues normally get evasion at seventh level. It got pushed back to ninth level, whereas bards, their jack of all trades now got pushed back to fifth level, but their first expertise feature is gained at second. So even though we were playing sixth level characters and they tended to be a little bit more built, what we didn't get the sense of is, you know, how does a second level bard in the one D&D play test feel different than a second level bard normally? And there were three weeks between the release of the UA and the beginning of the survey where we're supposed to provide our feedback. I know that there are some groups that are managing to run, say, a tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four game to get the full scope of what these features are like. Honestly, I just don't have that kind of time on my hands. And I can't imagine the majority of people participating in the survey having that much time to play that much D&D that often. Um, I could be wrong on that front, um, but that's just kind of I think that was like the summary of what I had told you right after uh, our playtest game concluded. Yeah. And, you know, there are like a lot of I, I would be inclined to agree there because there are a lot of content creators out there who, who are saying like, you know, we just don't really know enough about 1D&D in the first place to give, you know, good feedback on the playtest material. Like, you know, my go to example these days is usually Treant Monk. In fact, he wrote a open letter to Watsi saying as much that it's just he doesn't have enough information to go on. You know, this stuff is interesting, but we don't have the context that will tell us whether or not it's a good improvement or a bad uh, or a bad change because, you know, we don't know why they're trying to change these things. And of course, we have to consider that this is a company that's been working on this for so long that, you know, presumably so long, you know, they don't just release this a month after they announce it, right? Uh, with with a month's prep time. They've been working on this probably for a year or two at least. And, you know, it, it's hard to expect that they would be able to tell us their justifications behind every change. But we kind of almost need that to really give feedback that will be useful to them. You know, is this, uh, you know, like, like Michael was saying, you know, is this really something we were uh, meant to play test or is it just something to react to? So, yeah. You know, I, I think that it would be nice to get more information. Uh, more information is always better. Um, but, you know, I also concede that it's not a good business tactic to release the, uh, you know, the complete uh, version uh, for playtesting 
uh, since, you know, everybody's going to treat that like it's the new edition and, you know, as a whole, and they'll just drop fifth edition for the next year and a half until the, you know, complete one D and D final product comes out. So, you know, that's not going to be a good idea for them. So it's a bit of a sticky situation, uh, <laughs> very unfortunate, but, you know, we work with what we have and I just want to say up front that, um, I did have a good time doing this one shot. I, you know, felt like I put in the appropriate amount of combat. Um, you know, the one shot went like, uh, this, we had a quest, uh, got the quest, went to go to the quest location and fought some stuff, uh, it was a mix of giant centipedes to start us off, you know, for the appetizer. Then for the main course, we got ourselves a banshee uh, with, um, you know, no magic items or silvered weapons on the part of our player characters. So they had some uh, interesting choices to make and uh, tactical decisions uh, to, to do. Um, but they made it out alive, ultimately. Uh, and... Yeah, that was pretty much the whole thing. Oh, well, of course, they were as like zombie things as well. Uh, the stat block I was using was ghouls. It was it was pretty good. Uh, and I think it definitely showcased the combat power of each class. But whether or not it was like better or worse than previous classes uh, is hard to say. Uh, subjectively, I didn't think that I had any less fun than I normally would. So as much as we can talk about all the things that it's hard to articulate what we think about a lot of this new playtest material. I can say we do have like a list of things we did see in action and some thoughts and feedback, even though again, you know, really we've had like two hours of playtime <laughs> really testing a lot of this stuff out. In addition to a lot of the prep work Ian just described to give some context to uh, what this playtest was, we had a party with two rangers, a rogue, and a bard. The ranger I decided to play was a melee ranger. And for those of you who may have listened to Dragon Mind for a while, you may uh, know the story of my favorite character, Solomon, who is designed to be kind of like a witcher character. In his very first iteration, I had read the ranger lore of fifth edition. I was like, of course. And I'm reading through all the abilities and the flavor text. And I'm like, this is my Witcher character. And then when I actually saw him in play, things like favorite enemy and favorite terrain were so situational and didn't come up in play meaningfully at all. That being said, I wasn't playing the standard two weapon ranger, which is really what this edition was pushing. Um, but I was trying out basically if I make uh Solomon a sixth level ranger with you know the new magic initiate fee and the way humans work now am I going to have a satisfying experience so to that end our fourth player um was a ranged ranger one that's traditional uh with a bow and an arrow and all all that good stuff and then of course between the rogue and the bard they had only the one subclass so it was a very standard kind of build for each of them uh, the one thing I will say about the bard uh, that Stephanie played, uh, she basically tried to play her favorite character, which is Zoe from Gyrus. And when it came to spell selection, rather than going through the arcane spell list and picking out transmutation and illusion spells or whatever, she just went with the suggested list to really get a sense of this is what Wizards of the Coast is recommending. How well does that hold up to actual play? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So 
I think uh, where I want to get started, though, before we get uh, too much into the nitty gritty is really just talking about the character building process, because, you know, a lot of times I end up as the DM for a lot of these things. So I don't really end up on the player side of things. And for the first two games that I mentioned earlier with the character origins UA, I was the DM, so I didn't get a chance to make a character. I'll say straight up that the Solomon Ranger build I brought to the table worked exactly how I imagined the original build to work the first time. There were a lot of Ranger spells that I picked because they were effective, but knew that I wasn't really going to use. So really, my only complaint is I actually ended up with options I didn't really want, but didn't necessarily take away from the build. Um, I will say that it was super nice getting expertise for a ranger at first level. And the new magic initiate background feat really helped shape this kind of versatile character. I'll also say I've actually found that, you know, saying like, hey, this is a six level character, build it. I found character building to be more time consuming than with uh, traditional fifth edition, mostly because now as part of the background, as freeing it is to have an extra feat at first level having to pull all the knobs and levers that come with that first level feat like choosing what my magic initiate um spells are going to be going through the primal spell list and kind of like in my head marking off the uh the evocation spells i found that to be a much more tedious process than normal even though in play the character i created was much more fun um, now, Ian, I know that you participated as a player in the Character Origins UA. I was curious if you found that you had a similar experience or if it was uh, smoother because we were only playing a first level character. Yeah, uh, I would say that it was probably smoother um, just because I didn't have um, to worry about uh, too much new stuff uh, just, you know, without having to go too high in level. Um, I think that... I think that the, you know, the changes that I've seen in the custom origins in uh, uh, the new classes and all these things, um, selecting those, I, I think I like them. You know, if it's a little if it's going to take me a little bit longer to get used to how I'm making that for the new edition, then so be it. Um, you know, I still have a good time with it. Uh, one thing I will say is that, you know, you're talking about the spell list and and like having to go through spells and, and schools with Magic Initiate. Um, I agree. I think it's kind of dumb. Uh, the Like, I love having the classifications of Primal, Arcane, and Divine spells. I think that's awesome. Um, but taking away uh, the spells that are specific to each class uh, and just saying, hey, you know, the schools, the Magic schools, you get two of them. Uh, go go find them <laughs> in the in the list and you know they leave it up to you basically to figure that out it's just kind of annoying I I think um I mean I don't know how realistic this is but you know I have an app that I can filter spells uh, with like through any tag uh, if it's a school if it's a class a subclass uh, or optional ones as well uh, level and it's always organized in alphabetical order uh, and by level and, and it's just there's got to be a way for Watsi to to do that 
right? I, I don't imagine, you know, on paper is kind of hard. I'm sure they can do it in D&D Beyond because D&D Beyond is also online. But, you know, on paper, you'd probably have to print like a couple of different tables, right? Saying this is it organized by level. This is it organized by um, class. This is it organized by school. So I can see why they haven't done that. But I, I agree with, again, I agree with Treant Monk in that they should have class-specific spell lists, even if they're going to have an overarching category for the spells. I was a huge supporter of these general spell lists of Arcane, Divine, Primal. I didn't quite know how they were going to use them, but I thought it was interesting. Like, I think it was a High Elf was one of the test races, and it was just like, pick a spell from the Arcane list. And it's like, oh, that's really simple. It's all in one place. Seeing this implementation of bards getting enchantment, illusion, transmutation, and another one that I can't remember. It's like now I not only do I have to go down the arcane list, I have to start filtering out the ones that are just the ones that I can actually take. And what you just said actually worries me a little now because it's a real big possibility where with the recent acquisition of D&D Beyond, I can see Watsi not coming out loud and saying it, but basically the best way to play the game is by using a digital tool set in order to filter all of the options. And then to get the most out of the game, you have to pay extra either a subscription or you have to repurchase a lot of these spells online um, in order to, to add to your digital tool set. I don't like that. <laughs> I think that the, I think it's a smart business strategy, maybe, um, but, you know, I've been doing a lot of research on fourth edition again, because one of the things that these uh, spell lists in particular remind people of are the power sources from fourth edition. So just as like a quick tangent, like in fourth edition, each class had a specific like power source and role. So a fighter was a martial defender, whereas a, uh, a druid was the primal controller. But rather than having like a few general classes with subclasses that specialize, it was like basically whenever there was a new power source and role, it like there was like another class. So there was like 20, 30 base classes in the game and it was largely overwhelming, but it was designed to integrate specifically with a digital tool set and people just didn't like it. And even though I do think that interfaces and people's comfort with technology has gotten better than it did in 2008, I still worry for them trying to optimize the game's content with the assumption that there's going to be integration with a digital tool set as opposed to doing it analog with pen and paper like you mentioned. So as much as I like the idea, seeing how it's implemented and being on the character creation end myself, it's like got got me second guessing some of the decisions that they're making about it. I think some probably in the next few months we'll be able to uh, get a better idea of how they're going to use D and D Beyond as a whole. So that'll be a good time to talk about you know the business side of that. I strive to defend Nui Talos and live up to my role as a spiritual leader. I journey to increase my knowledge of the cusp and cosmos. It has been prophesied that there is destiny in my blood. I fight for the honor of the name Steadyhand and the great kingdom of Firdirth. I wanted to find my true place in the world. I will protect my home and family at all costs. 
A young ruler's grasp for power threatens an already fractured world. Meet the heroes in Arc 2 of Advantage, a 5th edition D&D audio drama. Find us on all podcast apps. Yeah, so I figured we didn't get a chance to see how everything worked from the playtest. Like I mentioned, uh, Solomon was a one-handed melee build uh, and ended up being kind of like a pseudo tank. We didn't get to see like the light weapon property thing, which was one of the big changes, but we did get to see a lot of the rules in play. So I figured we would start in the order that it's presented in uh, the document with Bard. Oh, I didn't even know. All right, let me... Um, yeah, I was going to say. No, that's right. Uh, Michael, who was playing the rogue, was using the light weapon property to throw daggers. So my bad. It just uh, went over my head. Because now that you mentioned that in chat, I definitely remember that happening. So I, I misspoke there. My apologies. If you <laughs> want to mention things in chat while we're recording, you should stop by our Twitch channel at Incendium DM. We streamed this podcast and it's recording around nine on uh, on Fridays, most yeah. Fridays. So yeah, pop on by and we'll have a good chat. So like I mentioned earlier, our bard was played by Stephanie from Borrowing Brilliance. The bard that she played was Zoe from Gearus uh, for this one shot. And uh, one of the things that she decided to do was use the suggested spells rather than going through the list and deciding every little spell at every little level at each point. Which I guess, looking back on it, I'm definitely the type of player to like micromanage my character sheet and min-max and like do all that business. I was micromanaging even my starting equipment because they give you a certain amount of gold and now you have to like do all those little things. I, I wasn't going to just take the starting equipment, whereas uh, Stephanie did. Now, one thing I do know that didn't end up being a super big deal, but made her go, oh, and just throw up her hands for a second was the fact that Bards lost martial weapons. Part of Zoe's storytelling identity is that she combines Bardic magic with rapier proficiency. That as soon as fighting starts, she busts out the rapier and she uses sound magic in conjunction with it. And, you know, yeah, she still got a short sword. It just wasn't the same, though. It didn't have the same uh, imagery when it came to the fantasy of what was happening in the game. Overall, she said that losing fairy fire was a bummer, but the the suggested spell list was fine. She still got dissonant whispers. Um, She still got healing words. She still got most of the big spells she's expected so far from Bard. Now... Bardic inspiration, she also thought was interesting in hindsight as a reaction, because, you know, now that you know it's always going to get used, she was bummed that she lost a bonus action with her character. Although, again, if you think about it, yes, I can do a bonus action to make it feel like I'm doing something. But then if that Bardic inspiration doesn't get used, it's kind of a bummer. Um, She also, though, felt like she was going to hoard it because now it's only a proficiency bonus number of times. Normally, if she were to create a bard character, her, her charisma at sixth level would be a plus four, meaning she'd have four uses of bardic inspiration. She only had three because of her proficiency bonus. And she wanted to use cutting words, just didn't come up. She also thought cunning inspiration was a neat idea where you're basically giving advantage for the uh, bardic inspiration role. But yeah, those those were her overall thoughts. So... 
from the DM side, Ian, or just seeing it in play, did you have any particular comments? Um, I will say it was a little hard to get a good idea of like how well her character worked. Um, mostly because uh, she was down a lot that combat. Um, she did pretty good in the beginning and everything. That was all fine. But uh, then when like when uh, the quote unquote real combat started, uh, because giant centipedes only have four HP, so they were all just exploding at a touch. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't I didn't feel like I really got a good idea of like what she could do. You know, there was bardic inspiration. There was shatter. You know, these these good spells, you know, decent spells and stuff. But personally, it was harder to really see the difference between that and just regular bard because she I think she missed like two turns or so um probably as a whole so yeah you know uh just doubles back on what we said earlier about you know how much time we have to play test this and how often we can really uh take that make that time for longer periods of play testing actually that's probably not bad advice if you're thinking about play testing this material yourself picking more brute monsters with low AC, high hit points to kind of see how it works. Uh, just because if a party member goes down too quickly, now you can't see how it's being play tested. So it's a little, you can't really collect data that way. Yeah, yeah. And with the Banshee, you know, a uh, decent amount of hit points, um, but also resistances, a lot of resistances. So if you don't have silvered weapons, it's, even if the AC is only, I think it's 13 or something, um, you know, that's still, it's not going to deal as much damage as you'd like. And the the combat will take longer. So even longer, I should say, as they slowly whittle down your non-resistant HP. So that brings us to Ranger, which of course is the character I played. Like I mentioned, expertise, awesome. Favorite enemy, super nice uh, to basically get free Hunter's Mark. It's actually kind of funny. The thing I was most excited about building a level six Ranger was for Hunter's Lore, where you can Hunter's Mark something and know all of its resistances. And I forgot that I could do that, like to the Banshee. I'm like trying all these things. Why does it have resistance to everything? And at the beginning of the fight, I could have just locked onto it. Um, and I also forgot Hunter's Prey, which is basically Colossus Slayer. I, I, I forgot to add that D8 to all of the things. It wasn't until after I was collecting my thoughts that I'm like, wait a minute, I missed a whole ability. Still did a lot better damage than I thought I would have. I will say as a ranger, I took the defense fighting style. PHB Rangers also get dueling as an option, where if you have a one-handed weapon and no, nothing in the other hand, you get a plus two damage bonus. Because I was playing a wacky Ranger, I did kind of miss that dueling fighting style. That would have been the one I would have preferred to take. My biggest concern, actually, for Ranger, because again, I love the expertise. I love the favorite enemy. It's actually multi-classing. Um, because while I think a lot of the features I used were cool, Depending on what fighter looks like, I could definitely see myself taking uh, one level of ranger for a free hunter's mark and expertise and then having fighter be my main class and never really touching ranger. That being said, rangers do get all those spells that are very helpful. It's just the character I was playing, those spells weren't really his cup of tea, so I, I just didn't end up really using them. That being said, something I did note was... um. The ranged ranger uh, 
was responsible with how they built and built it like an actual ranger they took healing word which was definitely a game changer yeah i wasn't really sure who was gonna be subject to the uh to the banshee's whale there um i suspected you know the dc's not that high um but i suspected at least one out of the four of you would probably drop from that so um unfortunate that it happened to be the person who heals the most um but yeah no that that was definitely really cool um you know i you know i play moo in uh Giris and i'm a full straight class ranger and I, you know, I rely a lot on my spells actually to, uh, to do damage. Uh, like I shoot and, and shoot my arrows and stuff like that. But honestly, the spells are really what help me feel like I actually am doing something. Um, or at least when I'm dealing magic damage. So it was nice to see that the, the ranger, um, in the, in the one D and D play test was, uh, having some success. One thing, one thing that was kind of cool that we're going to talk about in the rules glossary and stuff um, was like, you know, we uh, like everybody in the party did some like hiding and stuff and uh, Ranger had Pass Without Trace. Uh, so that actually really helped a lot as well. Uh, really made made it feel like the Ranger was shining uh, a little bit brighter in some cases than like Rogue or Bard was in this case. So which I mean, it's kind of to be expected. We We already talked about how bard is uh you know not as bardy as they ought to be and rogue is definitely not the roguiest rogue anymore <laughs> um so uh so it's kind of you know neat to see that our predictions kind of came true there i was really happy to see that you know you were finding this build of solomon to work for you uh because i know you you've talked to me about solomon and and all the plights that you've had where you've tried to build him as a ranger then as a scout rogue and other things so yeah uh that was nice i will also say that the ranger's uh role as a kind of su support pivot character um still kind of came through during this play test um which is you know it's kind of nice to see that because it means that um they're still leaning into that kind of a character with even more effective mechanics than before so that was kind of cool actually what you just said like made something click for me that it kind of makes sense to me now why they put the expert classes as the first class group to release because while ironically none of these classes are like real specialists in terms of like damage or tanking or whatever if you have a bard ranger and rogue uh with these rules they all can cover a little bit of everything so no the bard was not the tank of the party but by having a bard a ranger and a rogue like i said uh solomon could act as a pseudo tank um, his armor class was not amazing. It was a 16. I took a changer and the defense fighting style. And also because of magic initiate, I could take the shield spell. So it was really a 21 for uh, if I really needed it to be seeing these classes work together now in action. I could see how, you know, Ranger Rogue Bard in terms of their expertises can cover all of the mental stats, like having an intelligence expert, a wisdom expert, a charisma expert. And I can see how obviously the rogue will be more of a damage dealer and Bard will be more of a support character, but they can flex in and out of roles 
pretty easily, especially with those first level feats. I think uh, Michael's Rogue, which we'll get to in a, in a second, took the healer feat. And it surprised me a little bit, but also it was really cool just to see, you know, the use of a healer's kit from a character that normally I'd be like, oh, that's the damage dealer. And I think that it also speaks to the strong design of those first level feats that you have something useful you can do with the healer feat. So moving on to Rogue, um, some things I noticed. Uh, first, because we didn't have any battle masters or order domain clerics or those really optimized classes that can help Rogue sneak attack on a reaction, the loss of Rogue's reactive sneak attack wasn't that big a deal. Even though I can see it like losing some effectiveness in the long run, the Rogue still dealt sneak attack damage. One thing I did want to shout out was Michael took a feat that was really cool, which is the Charger feat. It's very broken in its current rules as written. It needs some editing. But just being able to supplement the Rogue's DPR with that additional D8 damage was a really good move. Um, like I said, I had to correct myself earlier. I did take note that he also is using the light weapon property to throw daggers as a second attack, which is something I never see rogues do, um, mostly because the two weapon fighting rules were dumb before. Because of the terrain and because of the restraints of the session, we didn't see fast hands or second story work. What we did see in play was the new hide rules. And man, is that flat DC 15 not enough? Because uh, first... Even before you add rogue stuff, uh, the party's ranged responsible ranger took pass without trace, which adds in this current, you know, rules adds a flat plus 10 bonus to stealth checks. Meaning if we tried to hide, we had to roll like without any modifiers. We just needed a five on the die, um, which means we had like a 75% chance or whatever in order to succeed. Add on top of it that a lot of us had a stealth proficiency or a stealth expertise, we're almost guaranteed to make it. Um, and when you combined uh, the supreme sneak, which is just advantage on uh, stealth checks, there was like no way we were going to fail any hide checks. Um, that did lead to some complications later, but man, those new hide rules, I think they're actually a little too good now we should be comparing it to passive perceptions, not a flat 15. I will say that uh, those complications you mentioned for later, um, you know, the I, I think that the way hide works where like you can only hide if you're not within the line of sight of a hostile creature or something. Um, I, I think that worked out pretty well. You know, we saw the effects of that pretty clearly. Uh, there, was, there wasn't really a good chance for, um, you know, anybody to hide a second time after that initial one um the dc 15 and talking about the plus 10 and stuff i mean this is a really good example of why we really need to know more about one D D and the changes they're going to be making because pass without trace for all we know could end up being just advantage or something on stealth checks like not this flat plus 10 advantage would just make uh make it um like uh I, I forget how much higher it was like a five percent for like a plus four right or something like that 
to the roll as opposed to a plus 10. So that would make a significant difference to that situation. Yeah, in terms of if it should be a contested roll or not, if it's going to be passive perception, though, I will say that most passive perceptions of monsters by raw are very low. Like these giant centipedes, for example, which was the first one you were trying to hide against, uh, their passive perception is eight. Uh, so there's no way you're not going to su succeed uh, against that. Um, so I can see that, you know, a DC of 15 is trad traditionally considered to be the medium level difficulty class. Uh, and making that a compromise you know, if they had increased it to like 20 or something, well, then people might be complaining that it's too hard to hide. So, you know, I can see why they went with 15. I think contested checks, I still I still like those. I don't think there's a reason to remove those. I think it adds to suspense as well, instead of just characters waiting to find out if they're seen or not, right? Obviously, the DM doesn't have to show the result of the role uh, to the players, um, but... Sometimes that transparency can be kind of nice. Yeah, I do know that they're getting away from contested roles where like both participants are actively rolling something to see who wins a contest. But even the hide rules are like, make a stealth check. Whatever that stealth check's result is, is what the DC for the perception check to find you is. So that part of it is still in there, which is why the flat DC is just confusing. I don't think that a, the flat DC should be higher. I just think that the DC should be passive perception. We still have DC calculations built into spell save DCs of A plus proficiency bonus plus whatever. Because what this also means that if you have a particularly perceptive creature, it's going to be easier to hide from them. So if let's say the creature has a passive perception of 24 or something ridiculous, all you have to be is a DC 15. So yeah, it makes it, you know, a little harder to hide from centipedes, but it also makes it easier to hide from the things that you shouldn't be able to hide from. That being said, like you said, it could also be speaking to different gameplay procedures. So although we didn't successfully hide because the centipedes had blind sense, we got to see in action how blind sense counters hidden as a condition. Uh, the last part of this is a lot of the rules glossary things. There are a few parts of the rules glossary where my instinct was that they were cleaner definitions. Seeing them in play, definitely a lot of these rules are a lot clearer and a lot easier to adjudicate uh, than the fifth edition version. So blind sense was one of those. And I actually, even though we failed the hide check, I liked that we got to see how blind sense and hidden kind of counter each other. Yeah, I think that's great, actually. And and I haven't I, I you know, that changes a little bit of what I said, too, because we're talking about the DC 15 and stuff. But if blind sense strictly counters be blind sense, blind sight, I think they're I think they counter it the same. Um, the if that changes, then the DC of 15 uh, might not be as. Not, might not be as impactful as I had initially thought since maybe more creatures, you know, or maybe there's going to be more creatures that have blind sense or even, I mean, I know we have monsters of the multiverse, but that's still fifth edition. You know, we can't, we can't really, I, I just think it's silly that they, 
they are saying it's going to be backwards compatible when it's really obviously not going to be. Uh, and so like why monsters of the multiverse then, you know? So this is where I'm going to go off for a second off topic a little bit, because you're right. I think, I think by a certain definition, the game is going to be backwards compatible. I don't think it's going to be backwards compatible in the way we had expected. So I do think that Monsters of the Multiverse is going to be compatible with whatever new rules we get. If you look at the format of the race options in Monsters of the Multiverse and the UA uh, race options, there's definitely like they're formatted the same way and everything. I think that when it comes to monster design, like monsters of old may have new definitions for what they can do. So like, you know, giant centipedes in fifth edition have blind sense. We now have a new operating definition of blind sense. So we just have to know that the rules are a little different. I don't think it's backwards compatible in the sense that, oh, I'm going to play a one D and D rogue and I can use any old subclass. I think the way it's it's going to work out is are we playing by the old rogue rules or the new rogue rules? So theoretically, let's say you have a 1D&D bard, a 1D&D ranger, and a 2014 rogue. You may have a table where it makes sense to allow that mix of characters. I'm not sure that it's going to be best to play that that way. I think it can be very confusing, but like there were a lot of edits done to the monsters of the multiverse races. There are still people that would prefer to play with the old uh, kobold rules. You lose an ability score increase, but you do maintain pack tactics. So it could be that it's just these older uh, PHB rules are just kind of like considered legacy rules and a DM playing by the one D&D rules or whatever this next edition is going to be called. They can say, all right, well, you can use those old rogue rules rather than trying to fit the old rogue subclasses onto the new chassis. You just also have to play with the old chassis and, you know, you might get evasion a little bit quicker or something, but I can I can see it being backwards compatible in that sense, but it's not like true backwards compatibility in that everything is a clean ecosystem that works together. So I, I think that's like my two cents um, on that. Again, having gone through a lot of the fourth edition stuff recently, like fourth edition is a totally different game. So whereas I can see, say, a 2014 Rogue playing in the same party as a new UA Ranger, it's like if you wanted to bring like a fourth edition fighter, it's just the game is very different. So, yeah, I, I just think that they're not being they're not lying to us when they're saying it's backwards compatible, but it's definitely a little sketchy in how they're saying it. So in addition to blind sense, uh, some of the other rules I thought that were just really clean in their implementation, uh, I'm going to shout out the help action and the attack action with help, uh, very specifically the fact that you need to use something that you're proficient with to help. There were definitely a few times uh, someone would say, I want to try to make a survival check or a medicine check. And my character was proficient in those things. So it was fun to be like, I'll help you out. And then the uh, the attack action, just equipping and unequipping weapons. I just love how clean that is now. So like 
one of the things that happened in the combat is I had a hand crossbow, you know, Witcher style. And I was able to draw it as part of the attack because I already had my sword drawn from a previous turn. And then when I went to make my sword attack, I could stow it. And we mentioned how Michael's rogue character was able to use their offhand weapon to throw daggers. Now it's a lot easier to track, you know, do I have room to pull out a dagger and equip it before I throw it, all that stuff, just because those rules are a lot cleaner. So just, I just felt more so than the classes, the rules glossary bits made the game a lot better. Like that's like the most positive takeaway I've had from this whole playtest experience. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if they didn't really change much of like the chassis or uh, the subclass uh, stuff from the PHB of 5th edition uh, and just change the rules glossary up, uh, I think that 5th edition would be, you know, it would benefit from it extremely um, as a whole. So, you know, I, I have a lot of that to look forward to. I do like uh, we used uh, the study action. Uh, a couple of times. Now, uh, I don't like how that's an action sometimes. Like, I don't like the mental stats uh, skill checks to be actions because it just doesn't feel the same as something like sleight of hand or uh, athletics and, you know, trying to move a boulder or whatever. You know, I, I think using your action for those things makes sense. But I think that you know, saying something or thinking something or whatever uh, just isn't as, I don't know, I, I guess it makes sense realistically. It, it's definitely realistic, but I, I just don't like it as a game mechanic because I want my characters to be able to figure out something about the monster and act on it in the same turn. But it was nice to have a list from uh, the rules glossary that said, hey, this is what you could learn from Arcana. This is what you could learn from religion. Like, I didn't know which one it was going to be. I just knew it was intelligence uh, because it was like, you know, we have to figure out what these undead are weak against. And it turns out religion is the one that Watsi considers to be related to undead stuff. So that was kind of cool. Well, and it does say in the rules glossary, like as the DM, you have permission to not have one of these ability checks costs an action at all. I, I just, it's something that I've always known, but to have it just laid out as permission so explicitly, I, I think it's healthy for the game that way. Although I think I'm going to be less likely to take feats that let you study your search as bonus actions, especially if I know my DM is going to be playing by those rules. So um, those might need to be adjusted a little bit. Yeah, it's it's hard to make feats equal to each other um, because every game is different. So, you know, we like to complain about like, oh, this feat is so much weaker than that feat and stuff. But when we say weaker, we usually unless it's like straight up like stupid, uh, <laughs> you know, usually we mean that it's just situational, right? Like water breathing isn't a weak spell. It's a situational spell. You know, same thing for charger. You know, it's not it's definitely stronger than it was, but it's not quote unquote necessarily weak. It's just it's not very good compared to other things in most situations. We also experienced the Nat 1 inspiration. So that was kind of cool. Um, you know, personally, you know, I, I think it's easier to see it from a player perspective again. I'm sure uh, based on the reactions I saw from my players, they seem to like it. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on it? 
Oh yeah, I much prefer it to the uh, getting inspirations on a nat 20. I like this idea of having a systematic way of getting inspiration rather than just the DM's judgment um, because it's just so easy for that to go wrong. I definitely like what we just tend to do in 5th edition, which is you begin the session or you begin the adventure with a point of inspiration. And then when you get a long rest, you get inspiration back. I know that that's like a special human thing now, but I, I just like that a little bit better. But um, between the two, Nat 1s, to me, made a little bit more sense because you're learning from a deep failure and there's no threat that you're going to be chaining inspirations. I, I just, I know that like it might be statistically unlikely or whatever, but I think it, I don't know, it just is weird to have a player roll with advantage and then get another nat 20 and then get inspiration back and then roll with advantage and then get a nat 20. And that can be really annoying, especially if that player isn't playing thoughtfully or as part of a team. It's just, I can see that as a way of building animosity, whereas you're never going to get nat ones on advantages multiple times in a row. It's just it's just the opposite. And I know that there are some debates on whether it makes sense narratively. I just think from a game experience perspective, I really liked the nat one inspiration rule. I, I know Treant Monk has expressed some concerns about the same thing, uh, although, you know, you know, the way you put it there, John, it, it makes a lot more sense. You know, how how are you going to fish for critical failure? Why would you why would you fish for a critical failure? Because you're going to fit you're going to you're going to get your critical failure. You're not going to do anything that turn just so you can get advantage next. To, like, you know, there's not not a really good reason to do that. So um, I do think uh, speaking of crits, though, uh, you guys did experience a crit from some of my uh, monsters. I forget who it was. I think it was the Banshee. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, especially considering that uh, the Bard had dropped to zero HP from the Banshee's Whale, uh, the danger of that crit happening when the Bard is only at like a handful of HP from a healing word is very prevalent there. Um, the reason I bring it up, of course, is because they changed it back in the UA uh, to the original 2014 version of critting um, for this playtest for some reason. So it's almost like we were playtesting the other one of uh, the or the opposite of the other one. And, and it made me value the fact that monsters uh, can't critically hit in that previous UA. So I, I kind of I kind of hope that they keep that um, and. Uh, another way to handle it is just to change what crits do. Yeah. So, um, so just concluding thoughts about just the playtest material we've seen so far. Uh, I like it as a whole. I will say that this does seem to be an improvement over fifth edition. And especially when it comes to the rules glossary, I'm particularly impressed. Um, I think that there are certain things there assuming we're actually playtesting stuff, I think there are certain things that aren't just quite as thought through. Yeah, I agree. Uh, between the character origins and expert classes, I think the thing that they've been doing the best is the rules glossary. I think that I, while I can praise the ranger mechanics up and down, 
there wasn't anything about how Bard and Rogue played that really made me super excited about them besides little things. So like Bardic Inspiration being a reaction, not even we didn't even see Bardic Inspiration being used to heal because we had healing word. You know, there were some little changes with Rogue, like Supreme Sneak and the new Hide rules. But again, that goes back to the rules glossary, not any major design changes with Rogue in particular. So I really think that in terms of the new classes, they need these little adjustments, not these big sweeping changes, except again, to Ranger, which ended up being awesome. As we look at future UA, I'm curious what other kinds of rules glossary things we're going to get. But um, but yeah, it'll just be interesting to see. I, I even if I complained a lot during this <laughs> this podcast, I uh I still have a pretty positive outlook going into whatever the one D edition is going to be. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Sugar, spice, and everything dice. These were the ingredients selected to create the most badass ladies in all of our candrum, each treated to a vision of the possible destruction that could befall the world if they did not stop it. Thus, the dream team was born. With their skills combined, Sildwen, the wild wood elf who is one with nature and doesn't understand the rest of the world. She'll find new friends that may inspire her to consider new ideals and learn to love a world outside of just the woods. Poppy, a skilled falconer with a history of mercenary work, some more questionable than others. She's a lover of ale, a good fight, and her best friend Pudge. Though she is loud and opinionated, she has a big heart. Zuri, a sarcastic bard of both lore and shanties, is always on the lookout for a new story to tell in the taverns. Jinx, a chaotic cleric and devout worshipper to the best goddess in all of the world, of course, Kiavani. She is a bundle of rainbows, sunshine, and butterflies. Are dedicating their lives to fighting the forces of evil. Crit Like a Girl is a cinematic podcast featuring the adventures of four strong women and an adorable little owl. Join us every other Monday and come see how we crit like a girl.